Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 47 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Ian here. So it's been a very eventful week, hasn't it? Um, we've had the resignation, finally, of our dear leader, um, Boris Johnson. Got to say, as you'll know, I'm not a fan. Uh, delighted to see him finally getting kicked out. And um, I described the Tory leadership contest on my Facebook site as a collision between ambition and delusion. Uh, some of the lightweights who are lining up clearly believing that they have what it takes to be the Prime Minister is worrying in the extreme, but hopefully none of them will get anywhere near it. Uh, I'm not even going to pretend that I know what the outcome of that particular contest is going to be. So um, this week we've got a really interesting interview with someone who I had never heard of, but um, I saw a post that he put on LinkedIn that I find really interesting and quite intriguing. So I'm going to be speaking to Jay Warwick, and Jay uh, describes himself, um, I'm sure this is correct, I'm sure he wouldn't have said it if it wasn't, uh, he described himself as the first openly gay uh, black officer in the Metropolitan Police. And uh, yeah, Jay joined kind of roughly around the same sort of time as me. So it's really, really interesting. And that's the thing I love about doing this is that I get to speak to people from all sorts of different backgrounds um, who've all got one thing in common, and that is policing. But policing, of course, is a very broad church. And there are not only other, as you know from anyone who's listened to the podcast, you'll know that there are many different things that people can do in a long career in policing. But not only that, but Policing is a much more diverse place than people tend to give it credit for. There tends to be this very lazy stereotyping of the organisation as being one that is not at all accepting of people who have got a different appearance or um, gender or uh, ethnicity or sexuality. That was not my experience, I've got to say. But that doesn't mean to say that, um, you know, there were not 
instances or even many instances where that was the case. But I personally don't think that that is any worse in the police than it is in any other large organisation, particularly an organisation that is probably fairly male dominated just because of the nature of the job. Um, but there you go. So it'll be really interesting uh, to listen to what Jay has to say. Uh, before we do that, I just want to have a little um, mini rant about something. Uh, it was an observation which I've had for a while, um, but was really brought home to me in sort of sharp focus this weekend. So so um, we've just come back from a very nice weekend away in Shropshire uh, with the family and a couple of other families, uh, um, sort of school mums and dads, really good fun in our caravan. and. Um, what I really noticed this weekend, I mean, the thing is, since I finished in the police, and particularly, I suppose, since lockdown, we tend not to do that much driving, particularly uh, long distances, whereas this was a bit of an exception. And I, I must say, I do notice this as well locally where I live in the Midlands. and 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 that is the really terrible standard of driving on the roads at the moment. Um, so much aggression, um, so many people driving dangerously, uh, far too fast, far too close to, um, you know, your, your sort of bumper. Um, dreadful lane discipline on motorways, particularly you see people doing these crazy, dangerous, undertakes on motorways, weaving in between lanes of traffic at high speed. It's just shockingly bad. And there was at least three occasions this weekend where I was nearly taken out, um, you know, by stupid idiots. And I turned around to Kay, my wife, and said, fucking hell, what is going on here? Is this like, does everybody around here get trained at the, like, knobhead school of driving or something? Because um, there was a lot of um, terrible drive. So it got me thinking. I thought, well, why is this going on? And surprise, surprise, I don't think there is any sort of it's this is not a coincidence uh, that this, I think, um, has happened, um, you know, on the back of the police losing a hell of a lot of uh, resources and experience over the years. And um, I'm not going to quote the source, but um, I do remember reading something in the uh, newspapers recently where they were talking about the number of fatal accidents, um, you know, for many, many years, and um, particularly as a result of the improvements around vehicle safety and airbags and all of this kind of stuff, um, you know, fatalities on the roads um, um, had gone down and down and down for many, many years. And then uh, in the last few years, they've started going back up again. So I... I when I got home, I because I'm a bit sad, I got on the Department of Transport website and it's, it's actually quite good. You can download all sorts of stats, really, and you can sort of slice and dice the data in all sorts of different ways. And um, so I, I just out of curiosity downloaded data for England and Wales. Uh, and it was road traffic accidents involving either death or serious injury. Uh, and I thought, right, I'm going to go to 2010, where I'll do my first sort of cut, uh, given that that's when the Wicked Witch, uh, Theresa May, came into um, being the Home Secretary and started all this damage to policing. 
and and then I'll I'll finish around 2019. I deliberately didn't do 2020. I mean, there wasn't there weren't stats for 2021, which was interesting. I'm not sure why, um, but I thought I'm deliberately not going to do 2020 because of COVID. Um, the roads were incredibly quiet, so that would have been unrepresentative, I would suggest. So I did 2010 to 2019, um, dumped it all into an Excel spreadsheet. And that's when that's when the trouble started for me because I'm not very good with Excel. Um, but I managed to uh, muddle my way through. And uh, eventually I had the headline totals. Sorry if this is boring the shit out of you, but um, I think it's important. Um, the headline totals for each of those nine years from 2010, 2019. Anyway, surprise, surprise, there has been a 12% increase in serious injury and death on the roads in England and Wales since 2010. And given the complete knobheads that I saw driving around um, this weekend, it comes as absolutely no surprise whatsoever. And I've got to say, um, you know, do you actually see traffic officers out and about the way we used to? Um, patrolling the motorways. I mean, I'm sure they must be out there somewhere, but I don't see them. I don't know if you see them. We do see these highways agencies, people, but they're about as, I mean, I'm sure they do a very important job in terms of keeping the traffic flowing, but in terms of enforcing the law and stopping these idiots, identifying and stopping these idiots and taking their cars off them or giving them points on their licenses, which eventually they end up getting disqualified for. Um, they, they can't do that. They've got no enforcement powers whatsoever. So I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, you know, if I was the mother or father or family member of one of those people, I would really not be happy at all about what's been going on. And I would probably want some answers. And I would be wanting those answers from the people who made those decisions to take away all those resources that resulted in the death of my family member. But, oh, no, of course, uh, the people who made those decisions will never be held to account. I would be very, very, very surprised if they ever do. But what I would be saying to anyone who's listening to this who lost a good friend or a close family member or someone they cared about on the roads as a result of stupid, bad driving, I, the first thing I'd be doing would be making a formal complaint to um, the Home Secretary and saying, uh, there's a 12% increase in deaths and serious injuries on the roads in England and Wales since your government came into power and took away all the road policing resources. Um, so what have you got to say about that? Right, let's get into the interview with Jay. Hi Jay, yeah, I'm really well, how are you? Uh, yeah, good. So I'm just trying to make sure that my iPods are connected and I'm not hearing this from the computer rather than... It all sounds, yeah, okay. it all sounds yeah. good my end. Um, yeah, are you going to use your camera? I am, two secs. Uh, where is that? Where is that? Where is that? Start video. Okay, just a hey, quick, there he is. quick um, caveat for this morning. I yep. am going to have to break off for about two minutes at 11 o'clock because no, no problem my, at all. my husband's got a, a medical appointment and the dog walker will be arriving at 11. So I need to go and That's put no the dog's problem. collar, get the dogs dressed and hand them over to the dog walker at 11. <laughs> but it'll just take two minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's no problem at all. And uh, I can just edit that little break out and uh, stitch it back together again. No problem at all. Okay. So welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. Nice to have you on. Um, 
I'll just, just explain for people who are listening um, how it came to be that I, you came on my radar, really. So you posted what I thought was a really interesting um, post on LinkedIn um, uh, this week, I believe, isn't it? Early on this week, maybe back end of last week, possibly. Yeah, it's about Thursday, Friday, I think. Yeah, back yeah. end of last week. That's right. And, it, and I remember it really brought back memories, actually, because it was a, it was a sort of a recruitment um, I think it was part of an, uh, sort of like an advertisement, but they call them advertorials these days, don't they? And uh, yeah. for, for the Met Police showing a uh, white police officer. I'll put the picture actually in the podcast notes showing a white police officer in full uniform and a black male slightly in front of him, both running. And the the uh, strap line was another example of police prejudice, question mark, or another example of yours, making the point that actually the black person who's running is also a police officer. And it was challenging people's perceptions of the police, really. So, um, and then you went on to talk about some stuff which we'll, I'm sure we'll cover in more detail in the podcast itself. So, um, so yeah, so just explain to me your background uh, very briefly. Um, I believe you've only just recently retired. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But before I say that, can I just say a little bit more about the advert and why it was yeah. so empowering? Yeah, of course. Well, it, the advert it does challenge you to think about your own prejudices because the way it's framed and there's a set, series of these adverts is you automatically well many people automatically think it's a white cop chasing a black guy mm-hmm. but the actual reveal doesn't come till somewhere into the narrative that's a, quite a long narrative underneath and it's a recruitment campaign yeah and the the, the strap line hits you right between the eyes when they later make the reveal yeah. that it's two police officers chasing a third un- as yet unseen party. That's right. Uh, and that's what really hits you between the eyes with that, uh, the yeah. prejudice, yours, the, the police prejudice or, or yours. So, and that was back in 1988. And the other thing you say about that is um, <laughs> they were still wearing tunics for beat duty uniform. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so that's kind of awesome. But it really, yeah. Uh... It really brought back memories for me because I remember that advert really, really well. And uh, I thought it was excellent at the time in terms of showing, um, yeah, just, uh, as I say, just challenging people's immediate sort of assumptions about, about something. So so you, I'm really interested in hearing your story because you did your full 30 years. Um, but the, one of the other comments that you made, if you don't mind me um, going back to that LinkedIn post again, was that... Um, uh 1988 as you say here was not an encouraging time for a young black gay man with dreams of becoming a police officer so uh let we just we could spend hours and hours unpacking that couldn't we um (laughs) so let's start well i'm not saying we're going to spend hours and hours but let's let's start that, that conversation so so obviously um you are a openly gay man. Uh, you're also um uh what is your ethnic sort of heritage so to speak well, I'm going to get shot down in flames for saying this, but I'm a bit of a Heinz 57, really. <laughs> my um, my grandparents uh, on, on my mother's side were Scots and uh, English, and my father's side were Irish and Nigerian. Right. So okay. uh, I've got that. My mixed race colour comes from Nigeria, and right. I found out not so long ago, been doing some research that um, from what's called the Yoruba tribe, which is a middle to high caste tribe in in. Uh, in Nigeria, but I, my father left my mother when I was six months old, so I went to foster care. Right. And so I was with my mother's best friend, and I grew up for the first 10 years of my life. Oh, well, for so the first six months in Hull, and then for the right. next, up until the age of 10, I lived in Kent, in a place called Whitstable in Kent, 
Oh gosh, uh, on the you really didn't move around then, didn't you? And then I came back to live with my real mother and my stepfather when I was uh, off, just after my 10th birthday. So I grew up in Ealing. Uh, and I went in to Ely. A, Did you say Ealing? E- Ealing. Ealing, 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 sorry. West, West Ealing in London, not Cambridge, right, right. I know. So, um, yeah, I took the 11 plus to go to grammar school and then and lo and behold, it went from a grammar school to a um, comprehensive. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, so um yeah, that's, that's the story of my early life. And I, yeah, I've always yeah. remembered I wanted to be a cop since I was about 10. Really? So um, this is a, this is what I find really fascinating. About, this is what one of the reasons I love doing the podcast is because um, I'm fascinated with people's backstory as much as I am with what they did in the police. And everyone's... And the thing I... The great joy of policing... Well, it certainly... It certainly was when I joined anyway, and I'm sure it was when you, because I joined in 89 and you joined in 91, is that right? So no, very, very, I joined the regulars in 91. I was a special constable at, whilst I was at uni uh, in 89. I started in 89 as a special for two years. Right. And, um, you know, everybody sort of, a lot of people like to stereotype cops, don't they? And sort of try and put everyone in a bit of a box. And, um, and actually the reality is that, particularly in the Met, there's such an unbelievable diversity of backgrounds and uh, stories that people tell and upbringings and accents and appearances and everything. And, and that's that's why I find this kind of rather lazy stereotyping of police officers quite frustrating, really. Yeah, well, it's definitely no one size fits all. And the, the heritage of cultural diversity in the Met is goes back a lot further than people actually imagine. I mean, if you think only last week, Ron Hope, who was the first black borough commander, first chief superintendent at the Met, he died last week. He was also Mm. the first black inspector. And he was um, in the job in 1973 uh, when he joined. And it didn't take him long to rise through the ranks uh, to the rank of inspector. So, uh, and you know, the thing of the first black female police officer in the Met as well, you know, back in the 60s, she was a nurse and then joined the police. So... People don't give the job that credit for its cultural diversity that mm. much the credit that it deserves because it's an ongoing, it's a long-term process changing the culture of yeah. the police service. Yeah. But our culture was diverse long before people think it was. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, you know, I, I, I certainly worked alongside plenty of officers from um, the different uh, backgrounds, uh, ethnic backgrounds and, um, and, you know, openly gay officers and openly, you know, both male and female. And yeah, so it, it's just kind of like when I hear it being described as this sort of monocultural um, place that's hostile to people who are slightly different, I think, well, I don't recognise the organisation you're actually describing there. But anyway, we'll come on to talk about that because it's a very complex subject and I'd be really interested in knowing what you think about all of that kind of stuff. But having said that, I don't like to... Um, I don't know, define people on the basis of their colour or their sexuality. I think that's really, that's equally lazy, isn't it? So mm. I don't want, I don't want the whole podcast to be about that. I just think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, but there's other things that are just as interesting. So, so anyway, um, so you say you were interested in policing from quite a young age. Um, is there any reason for that? Did your family in the police or anything like that? No, I didn't. Uh, it was just something that I just felt I wanted to do. And, you know, it was, about service because I joined the St John Ambrose Brigade cadets when I moved to Ealing at the age of 10 so I was in uniform and I was in public service from a very young young age Mm. so I was you know St John 
and it's not St John's, it's St John, OS, St John yeah. Ambulance Brigade Cadets. And then I joined the adult division, I trained to be an ambulance technician, um, for, you know, as a volunteer. Yeah. And I did lots of public service events like um, the Royal Wedding in 1984. I was there line, route lining with St John. And I just had quite a lot of contact with mm-hmm. police officers through my cadetship with St John. Yeah. Uh, I actually applied to be a Met Police cadet when I was 16, but I got turned right. down right. because they sold me that at that time was, um, well, we see that you're doing A-levels and that you want to go to university. Mm. We don't want to stunt your educational growth. So yeah. come back to us when you finish university type thing. Yeah, yeah. It seems reasonable, I suppose. But um, yeah. So that was, well, that's what sparked it. It was the public service in, and uniform public service in me from a young age and the yeah. contact that I had with police officers, which was largely good. I mean, I'm not saying all the garden is rosy because yeah, there are yeah. definitely people who have suffered from different minority cultures, but as you say, we'll come on to that. Yeah. And, you know, I don't see the world through rose tinted spectacles. I have to, I have to judge on my own truths and my own experiences, my, yeah. my own lived experience. Yeah. And my lived experience at that age was, was a fairly good uh, and and positive contact with police officers yeah 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 but the very fact that you were involved in all of these sort of very public spirited um voluntary activities kind of says something about you even as a young child doesn't it that you clearly had that strong sense of service and um I don't imagine I don't want to sort of second guess here but I don't imagine that would have been particularly a common thing amongst your peer group at that time or was it I don't know uh, no, not. I mean, some people were in the army cadets. Some were in, I tried the scouts first, or the cubs. I, I didn't really enjoy the cubs, so I actually got poached by somebody on doing a first aid course with the scouts. And St John said, "Why well, you come away with us and come yeah. come and see what what we do?" And um, and I just thought I've, I've bought more into that because there was the public duty side of it. You go to football, you know, the Sunday league football. You'd go and do, provide the first aid for that. And there were you know other events like you know. Um, the Royal Tournament, there mm. the theatre, used to go to the theatre to do the first aid in the theatre. There's so much activity, and that's what really drew me yeah. in the first place. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, some of my peers were doing other public-spirited things, but mostly um, they were centred around sport. Yeah. I've got to ask you this, because as an ex-DI in a public protection unit... Um... <laughs> I've got a, I've got a slight I've got a, I've got to put get my apologies in um, before I ask this question because this is just me okay this is just my background that um, sometimes because of the things that you do in policing it kind of just messes with your head sometimes and we dealt with an awful lot of allegations uh, of safeguarding nature against adult helpers in certain youth organizations um, mm-hmm. who were clearly uh, in those organizations for all the wrong reasons did you ever see any of that sort of creepy behavior whenever you were doing that? Absolutely not. No. I mean, I, I've heard about in other organisations, particularly in scouting, but not not directly for me. No. I mean, uh, I, I went to the Ealing um, Divisional, Ealing Division of St John Ambulance Brigade. Um, I rose through the ranks as a cadet because they have a rank structure. Yeah. Um, and I found it very formative that they were formative years for me. And I had, yeah. I had nothing but, I mean, they didn't even have DBS checks back then. It was terrible. I know. I know. But, this is in the days when there were people just, it was like, it was like letting wolves out amongst the lambs, wasn't it? Really? Yeah, absolutely. But no, I had a really po- positive experience in the, in the youth um, movement. You know, we even went to a joint, the, the scouts used to have what's called a jamboree, which was a massive camp. Mm. And mm. I, I think it was not, it's just up the road from where I live now in Buckinghamshire. Yeah. Uh, and a different youth organisations there. So you had the Boys Brigade, you had the Scouts, you had us, the St John. 
um, Red Cross Youth, I think they were called. Yeah. And it was just a hodgepodge of different youth organisations. Yeah. And I didn't, but, but it's not something you, did, I, you discuss openly as a young 12-year-old no, no, boy. Not. So no, I didn't no. hear about it back then, but I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure there were issues. It's probably say. a really unfair question to ask you. I've probably massively yeah. hijacked you because, again, yeah. I've just challenged myself on that question. On the sense no, but it was, that for all I know, for all I know you could have had a really terrible experience <laughs> that you've no, kind but... of buried, buried away psychologically for years, and I've just absolutely ripped the top off <laughs> no. that scab, you know? No, absolutely not. I mean, I, there was some... <laughs> very influential adults in my life in that period of my life who um who completely the antithesis of what 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 your experience as a public protection di <laughs> were actually very encouraging very formative very um they steered me on the right path let's say because yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. could have gone in a different direction for me yeah yeah no, um, I'm very, the people, I'm very, people i used very... to hang out with I'm very yeah. pleased to hear it. Right, I shall I shall put my prejudices towards youth workers to one side now for a moment. <laughs> I'll move, I'll move on. So um, so you obviously you describe how you joined the specials. Um, and that was that you said I seem to remember from your post on LinkedIn, that was when you were at university in Cleveland, is that right? Yeah, Middlesbrough. So it was a poly when I first went there, but then it became a uni, Teesside University. So I, yeah, Middlesbrough uh, was I don't want to be too denigrating because there's lots of people from Middlesbrough who all listen to the, the pod, but it it was rough as a badger's ass when I went there. <laughs> so, and students, students weren't very popular in the local community. Um, but I joined the specials at a really strange time because it was Maggie Maggie out, out, out demonstration. Yeah, yeah Maggie, it must Maggie, have been really rough up there, was it? Uh, but it was interesting because... I was the first ever special constable who was also a serving member of the National Union students. Right. I was the I was the Time T's regional NUS um, welfare officer. So demonstrations were they quite interesting. They probably thought you were like a spy. Well, yeah, well, it was weird because demonstrations were really interesting because I used to police them. <laughs> and so I was mistrusted by the police and I was mistrusted by the students. <laughs> so it was a, kind of a rock and a hard perfect, place. Perfect. Yeah, you know, it's yin and yang, isn't it? So, but I also um, got outed while I was a special. So um, I was seen coming out of a gay nightclub. Oh, really? In Middlesbrough. It's called The Paradise. And, and trust right. me, it wasn't, it, Paradise, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> so it was who, who outed you then? It was wipe your feet on the way out. Um, it was a, a sergeant who's, uh, who was in charge of the specials. And somebody you, again, your own prejudice and your own misconceptions about who would be supportive and who would be an ally. Yeah. Uh, a female middle-aged sergeant, um, married lady, had family. She had reports back from one of the PCs, the regular PCs who'd seen me coming out of this nightclub. And she challenged me in front on the, I think it was either a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. I can't remember what the night was for the specials, their training night. Yeah. And she asked me in front of the whole class on the training, training night. So I said, oh, you were in the paradise and you were puff. Uh, really? And she literally challenged me straight there. And eventually when I told like, about 18 months later, when I was putting my application in for the Met, she said she said oh good luck with that because you um you won't last five minutes down there when they find out you've got a handbag oh god it so just that... goes to show the difference the the difference that, that you know 30 years makes oh my yeah. god it's just terrible isn't it yeah but um, i just sucked it up and got on with it you know you just gritted so you, yeah i mean it was a relief so... actually yeah, I was going to say, I was going to, I was going to, I was wondering that. I'm glad you said that because it's, I suppose, had that been, was that the first time that you were able to openly admit to anyone that you were gay? Yeah, don't use that word admit. 
Well, not not admit, you, but you, you admit tell, to a crime. You tell. admit to telling lies at Porky's. You acknowledge. Excuse me. Acknowledge. Well, that's the word acknowledge. Sorry, yes, my like, no, no, I was out at uni. Um, I was, it was one of those things I was selectively out. So I was out to all my friends at uni, right. but I wasn't even out to my parents till I was thirty-four. Right. Oh, um, gosh. But the thing is, with coming out, you should never stop doing it because right. everybody's. Most people think it's a one-off thing. You just come out, but everybody assumes that you're straight. It's an yeah. assumption, and then and you have to correct them on their assumptions on numerous occasions. Right. So I first came out in policing, as I say, or was outed as a special, mm-hmm. and then I went back in the closet as far as work was concerned when I joined the Met, and Did it was you? only for halfway through training school that I came out at, at Hendon. Right. And then, of course, I had to come out again when I went on my street duties course at my first posting to Notting Hill, Notting Hill, which was a divisional command in its own right. Before, yeah, way before we had borough policing. Yeah. There were many, many commands with their own chief superintendents, their own custodies, etc., their own control rooms. Yeah. And Notting Hill was my first posting. So I had to come out for a third time in my life. Oh, well, four, because I came out of school. <laughs> then I was outed in the specials and I came out at Henry <laughs> and I came out. So it's, it's an ongoing process. Well, that's really interesting. And I've learned something there because I didn't know that. But when you describe it like that, it makes complete sense. And um, yeah, so... Um, so notwithstanding what we said right at the start about how the Met is a lot more diverse than people give it credit for being, or not just the Met, the, the police service nationally is, is, is a lot more diverse than people think it is, and a lot, a lot more tolerant and uh, accepting as well. But I'm going to caveat this, but there, <laughs> there are individuals or even groups of individuals who do not see it like that, do they? And, um, and they're and right. And have got a and have got a diner on anyone who dares to show any sort of individuality uh, for whatever reason, whether that's a sort of flamboyant dress sense or whether that's a uh, odd kind of choice of haircut or anything, you know. But yeah. sexuality and 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 ethnicity are the sort of the two biggies, I suppose. Um, so how how did you find it yourself whenever you joined the Met? Um, well, how were you, how were you treated? A as uh, as a as a black man or a man of mixed uh, heritage, um, and as a openly gay man. Yeah, it's interesting. I'll have to sort of sort of preface that with that. Every time people ask me about that is. It's bizarre. I see myself as a cop first. I'm a police officer. Well, I was. I still mm. got, got used to saying I'm, I was rather than I am. Mm. I, and people used to introduce you at parties. Oh, this is Jai's a cop. I'd say, no, I'm not a cop. It's what I do for a living. But the flip side of that is when they talk about me being a black gay cop, I was like, no, I'm a cop first and I'm black yeah. and gay second. Yeah. And it was... I, when I first on the job, it was difficult because people didn't know what to make of it. I mean, I was the very first black openly gay cop in in policing as far as I know, because I was out right. say in 89 and right. then again in 91 and 92. Yeah. Um, so people's responses were quite interesting. I'll, I'll tell you one about a, uh, a TSG officer, a little story when we were training at um, Hounslow for public order training, um, yeah. level two uh, public order in, in a bit. But my first experience was when I came back from a holiday, just doing my probation at Hendon, at, at Notting Hill rather, uh, at someone back what we call banjoed uh, for, the, for the listeners banjoed means someone's forced open your yeah. locker Some, somebody banjoed my locker and then managed yeah. to put it all back together again and lock it yeah and on the inside of my locker when i came out from holiday was um a quite explicit poster for a gay sex video uh and it was i can't remember what it's called now but it is it's a popular gay um porn video uh 
star called something Tom, Tom of Tom of Finland. That was it, Tom of Finland. Right. Yeah. And this poster was quite explicit, not not warts and all, but you know, yeah, yeah, leather yeah. clad, leather clad yeah. guy in chaps and a leather studded hat and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. And it was stuck to the inside of my locker. And I, so I told my street duties instructor about this. And uh, I, it wasn't a complaint. I said, oh, someone's done this. He said, big deal. Mm. And unbeknown to me, he'd gone to the chief superintendent and said, this is out of order. I'm not having this. Um, yeah. And the chief super called me into his office and said, right, this is, this is not acceptable. I mean, bear in mind, this is 1992. Yeah, he yeah, said, yeah. I am going to send out a memo. I said, please don't go. I'm not really, I just don't want to rock the boat. And he mm. said, no, I'm going to find out who did this. So, so he sent out, in those days, we didn't have an email. So it was a memo yeah, that yeah. went out saying from the chief super, if, if, if nobody owns up and this happens again, I'm going to, I hate the word because it's not really a word, but yeah, uh, yeah. we use it. I'm going to forensicate your locker yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to get fingerprints. I'm going to find out who did it. And they'll be, uh, they'll be having a meeting without coffee. So yeah. that's how strong the support was for me then. But right. then was the, the other irony is that everyone used to take the piss out of you and call it, and give you nicknames. There were nicknames back then and, yeah, yeah. Pet, and pet names, but um they would poke fun, they would make the gay jokes and everything. And, we, yeah. and with self-deprecation, and lots of people say that you, if you join in, you're, you're encouraging it, you're participating in it, mm. uh, and you're facilitating it. But back in those days, you just did, you went along with it. Yeah. But the interesting thing was that no other teams, no other members of teams at that police station were allowed to take the piss out of me because yeah. they would used to say, um, my lot would say, "Yeah, he may be a puff, but he's our puff, so we're the only ones who can take the piss out of him." <laughs> so it was almost um, endearing on one hand, and then the other was like, "They're still calling me a puff." Yeah, I know. I know it's very strange, isn't it? I mean, there is this whole thing, and I've had this conversation, a sort of similar version to this conversation with with several other podcast guests about the humour in policing, which is very often used as a um, common coping mechanism to deal with some of the crappy stuff that you have to deal with, um, but which sometimes goes uh, just just way too far, way too far. Yeah. And and yeah. and knowing where what knowing what is good natured banter, t- stress diffusing banter, and what is nasty specifically yeah, in in a targeted individual behavior is you know well i i i had you could probably tell from the way the conversation is going i'm quite a strong character quite mm. forceful and i and i can I, I pick my battles and i know which ones i can win but yeah. i i i had my line and no one would cross it people knew where my line was mm. and you know i wasn't frightened of going toe to toe with someone in the locker room and telling them that they were out of order yeah so that <laughs> That's how it was for me, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Um, that's the word. I've just remembered the phrase that they use in in diversity training is acquiescing. So if you right. if you're joining with a self-deprecating jokes you, that you're accused of acquiescing, yeah. Um, for me, that doesn't quite hit the right note for me because mm. it it's sometimes it's self-protection, sometimes it's you know what I really just didn't care, yeah. and most of my colleagues didn't care. It was like. I've, I had this conversation with people over the years and said, yeah, my bit, the, the biggest um, problem I've had as far as um, diversity, let's say, is from being a short ass because I'm only five foot seven and a half. Oh, really? the, half the half inch counts, people. It really <laughs> does count. And so back in the day, before I joined, you had to be five foot eight to be a Met officer for a yeah. male. Um, before that was five ten. Um, uh, and they only reduced it uh, in the late 80s when they realised they didn't have any um, enough people from, 
from China and the Orient. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, I can't even say the Orient now because that's very um, imperialistic. <laughs> but from China and Vietnam, yeah, yeah. Um, Asia, Southeast Asia, they didn't have many Asian police officers, so they um, yeah. they reduced the height, or they did away with the height restriction. So the yeah. biggest problems I've had over the years is not for being black or gay; it's from being a short ass, and that's yeah. from both the public and internally with the police yeah and i and i remember um people getting the piss taken out of them for pretty much every conceivable reason and i had the piss taken out of me because i was from ireland um anyone from wales particularly if they had a very strong welsh accent would get slaughtered um the, the uh scottish people the jockeys the jockeys yeah yeah that's right yeah i mean they'd get slaughtered um everyone got slaughtered didn't they for different reasons and um, so, yeah, it's just part of the culture. And I think there's something interesting to know what you think. If you take that away from policing, I mean, so there's these horrific disclosures recently of things like the Charing Cross, oh, horrible wow. kind of vile, fit, what, vile, what, vile. WhatsApp type um, stuff going on. Um, and the, taking which, the pictures of the corpses. Oh, yeah, it's horrific. The it's, 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 we don't help horrific. ourselves. It's lots, yeah, of yeah. Own goal, lots of own goals are scored. Yeah. I mean, in terms of badness, if, if 10 is is the worst it can get and one is, you know, you wouldn't blink an eyelid. These are these are 10s, aren't they? Yeah. Um, and no one wants to see that. But I suppose where I'm slightly nervous at the moment is that if you make the organisation so terrified of people saying anything that might offend someone, then... I don't think it, it becomes a very unattractive place to work. I don't know what well, you think on that one. Well, I'll give you my take on offence in a minute, but with the piss-taking, I was once told, um, and I believe, firmly believe, and I tell other people this, is that if they're not taking the piss out of you, they don't like you. Mm, that's right. As soon as you get them, as soon as you get your, your, the banter going and they're taking a the piss, providing it's not crossing the line, and bizarrely, once you've got your nickname, you know you're in with the in crowd. Uh, often, quite often these days, in those days, you 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 sort of chose your own nickname, nickname sometimes, but most of the yeah. time, you know, uh, it was given to you. But it was part of belonging to a tribe, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. And you, it's acceptance. So if they're not taking the piss out of you, you need to worry. Yeah. But going back to offence, and what, and this is a broad church expression, and, and there's there's always the exceptions to the rule. I believe that offence is something that is taken, not given. Mm. and if you don't take offense you're not offended if you're not offended then you mm. take this thing out of the tail when you take if somebody's trying to be offensive and trying to um rile you or get a response mm. i just choose not to be offended yeah and then yeah. where's the problem if i choose not to be offended yeah so it, yeah. it's it's a it's a very um broad stick that it's yeah. not exactly um People would say it's a sort of sweeping statement. Yeah. yeah but on yeah. the whole, on the whole, I think that offence is something that is taken, not necessarily given. Yeah, definitely. And there are professional uh, offence uh, people of you know professional people who yeah are professionally professionally offended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? And my experience, I, I'd probably pretty much every rank uh, that I was in was that some of the people who were very quick to play that card so to speak the, the i'm offended card and this is a massive generalization but generally speaking it tended to be the people who actually weren't very good at the job and well, i and, found and, that 
and they would always use, they would use that as a sort of a to throw sand in the eyes of managers and supervisors you know I've found that quite a lot actually over the years you know as a sergeant and inspector I mean as a sergeant for seven years and inspector for 14 and um, <laughs> yeah even trying to get rid of people who have let's say a diverse culture where whatever that be if they were one of the nine special uh, characteristics mm. um quite often as a black gay male i was disciplining people or writing people up or giving people um action plans yeah and they would try and play a particular card with me well, um, like that, it. that don't work yeah, i mean yeah. i i would say to people i'm not writing you up for being dangerous because of I'm writing up you, you up for being dangerous because you're dangerous. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and you need some sort of development. Giving yeah. people development plans and action plans doesn't mean uh, that they can turn around and throw that in you. And people have known over the years you can't you can't throw that one in my face because I won't stand for it. Yeah, but the yeah. trouble is, you've got other people who are offended on someone else's behalf, and yes. that just blows well, like, my mind. That just blows my mind. I know you're oh offended. God. And I find it extremely patronising, especially if someone says something to me or in my hearing, yeah. and then somebody else takes it upon themselves to be offended for me. Well, yeah. pardon the pardon the, the language, but fuck yourself because yeah, exactly. if I'm offended, I'll say so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. And I just think I put yourself in the you put yourself in the position of the poor professional standards investigator who gets that pile <laughs> of shit, you know, landing on the landing on the desk and thinking, oh my god. Have we not got better things to be to be worrying about, you know? But there's an unconscious of the time. Your uh, your dog walker's going to be here in a minute. Um, do you want to do you want to put do you want to pause uh, while we sort that out? I can re can restart um, when when that's all she, done. And she's dusted. not here yet. But, all right, uh, okay, fine. No, she's I not here yet. I can see through the window when she arrives. So all right, okay, no worries, no worries. So let's move but, into your police career because I think that's because um, we're sort of there's a there's a risk that we become. You know, we can dip yeah. in and out of this kind of stuff as we go yeah. along, can't we? But um, I'm just interested in in this, the stuff that you did and your highs and lows and sort of good times and bad times and all that kind of stuff. So so you went to Notting Hill from training school, is that right? Yeah, it was, uh, good times back then. But it was all pre, um, pre-Ripper and um, having to get authorities to do a little plain clothes work. And yeah, I had a great time. I had some good results there. Did a lot of plain clothes work, nicked burglars in, in, the, in, in the act and real good, proper uh, frontline hardcore policing where we, we walked the beat, you know, whether it was pissing down with rain, it was freezing cold, you walked and that's where you learned your craft. And yeah, as far yeah, as yeah. I can say, back then again, street craft is something that is, has been lost. So I'm going to test, I'm going to test my memory of um, call signs. Bravo Hotel, was it? Notting Hill? Yeah, yes, Bravo Hotel. Hey, look at that. 194 Bravo <laughs> Hotel. <laughs> Excellent. Bloody hell. The old grey matter is obviously still um, completely... <laughs> yeah, still there, still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Notting Hill, my, my only experience of Notting Hill was only the dreaded Notting Hill Carnival every year. Oh, so, I, yeah. so I policed the Notting Hill Carnival quite a few times over the years as a uniform PC. Um, yeah. But I would imagine, so I was Clapham in, in those days and they tended to put, um, as you probably remember, they tended to put officers from areas like Clapham, Brixton, Stoke Newington, Hackney, the places yeah. where there's a lot, a large <laughs> sort of Afro-Caribbean community, they tended to put us on the sort of those parts of Notting Hill that potentially were flashpoints like sort of St. Luke's Road, 
um, real um, all, all Saints Road, all Saints Road, Radio yeah. One st- Sound Stage. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if they still do that anymore. I mean, it's um, but I can see the rationale for doing it. So, what? But what was it? What was it like for you uh, as a local officer during that during that period? Because it was. I mean, people. If people have never been to the Notting Hill Carnival, I would say to anyone, go to the Notting Hill Carnival at least once in your life because it is an unbelievable um spectacle isn't it there is and there are so many heads uh, so many sides to the same coin as well because it can be incredibly uplifting it can be hedonistic it can be but at the same time it can be nauseating it could be scary it could be yeah. just for, if you don't like crowds for starters um it's not something even on children's day it's not somewhere i'd take my kids i'd no. have to say no. um it's terribly frightening um the amount of sexual assaults that go on, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. It's an incredible experience, incredible experience. But I will say that the 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 vilest and most vehement form of racism and prejudice that I've ever had is while serving at Notting Hill Carnival, and it's not from colleagues. Mm. It wasn't from colleagues. It was from members of the public. Yeah, no, and I it can was remember. From, and it was from the black community as well. They used yeah. to. They used to focus in on black office and asian officers yeah and they would target us yeah and it would you get the and throughout my career not just not in your carnival it would be i would say uh, that's a general rule of thumb from my, my career the, the the worst form of hatred that i've ever had from uh, around being black has come from the from the public mm. and you get the oh yeah you're, you're a coconut you're black on the outside and white on the inside and you're yeah. a bounty bar and all that kind of stuff and i yeah, would like yeah. i would rail against that and, it water, after a while it became water off a duck's back, but it still hurts. And then yeah, I've always yeah. got this, um, there's this catch 22 and they can't have their cake and eat it. And when they talk about there aren't enough black people and Asian people in the police, but as soon as you join, it's oh, like, like shit. What, yeah, you know, <laughs> why, why do you want to be a cop? You shouldn't be a cop. You're black. You're a traitor. Well, you, you can't have it both ways. Either there aren't enough black police officers in the force mm. or you want people to join. Yeah, yeah. If you want people to join, but well, don't treat us like shit and call us traitors. Yeah, and then exactly. spit at, and spit at us when you see us in the street. It's yeah, just, and we used to. I've never uh, understood that. Never understood it. We used to feel. I we used to feel very protective towards our our black and Asian colleagues in in those environments because they they got some they got so much shit. It was unbelievable. Um, been called Judas by pretty much everyone who walked past them, and um, yeah. you know, spat at and. Oh, it was just horrible, really, really horrible. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I remember um, some of the not was it scary or was it just unnerving? Um, I, no, it was pretty scary actually. The time when it really felt dangerous there to me was always on that last evening, uh, which was the Bank Holiday Monday, isn't it? Bank Holiday Monday. Yeah, Bank Holiday Monday. Yeah. And and it's drawing towards the end of the evening and the end of the carnival and all of the most of mr and mrs nice person have all gone home haven't they Uh, i mean don't get me wrong there's still got to be lots and lots of decent people there obviously but mostly uh people have been drinking all day the sound systems are going to have to be turned off that was always the trigger point yeah at some point and then there is a real tension building isn't there and Mm. um and you know that all the shield serials are all fully kitted up with yeah. flame with flame proofs and shields all yeah. ready to go 
but you, the poor old uniform cops, are like right in the middle of it all, aren't you? Oh, you're basically cannon fodder until the, tri- yeah. until the b- cavalry arrives. Yeah, I mean, I've been on both sides. I've been, I've been the cannon fodder and I've been the cavalry. But yeah, yeah it's it's scary moment it's that twilight zone isn't it and yeah, it's literally yeah. that twilight it's well, starting yeah. to get dark yeah. and you see large groups of youths all starting to get masked up and yeah. putting the hoods over their heads and everything and you think oh this is going to kick off any minute here you know but it is it's a but it's i always feel sorry for the, the residents as well because because they get their houses get trashed don't they well, the, the people go and dump in the basement areas they literally go and defecate and urinate in the people's basement these days they board it all up they put boarding as in horizontal boarding across the basement areas the basement flats so it's all their flat well, that, in darkness well, that they, costs they, some they thousands of pounds doesn't it yeah, that costs some thousands often... of pounds to do that doesn't it and the other side of the thing for the residents what i always found really really unfair and that, that it's a bit bizarre it's one thing that knocked me most about carnival is carnival crimes now mm. a crime if it's within the carnival route which is a very defined um area it was a you know counted as a carnival crime but you know all the rapes sexual assaults and knife point robberies and drug dealing that took place 10 yards either side of the uh, the other side of the border wasn't mm. considered a carnival crime so when they announced the crime statistics so oh yeah much lower than they were last year we didn't have many the, there was no no violent crimes and you used to think well, you're such bloody liars because mm. you manipulated the truth because we know that there are dozens if not scores if not hundreds of more crimes that than you're admitting to because they mm. happen 10 yards across what, this arbitrary borderline that you've drawn yeah, and yeah, that yeah. really used to piss me off when they're yeah, claiming yeah. that the, the carnival crime was low because we all knew it wasn't I have never heard music as loud as that either. I mean, oh my God, I can still, if I, I can almost mentally put myself there now. Um, that sound of those, those, those flatbed lorries with speakers piled sort of 15 feet high, a hot, you know, maybe 20 huge speakers, 15 feet high. And the sound, oh my God, I've never heard anything like Correct. it. And you can actually feel the sound on your chest, can't you? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of firearms officers, uh, won't go to carnival because sometimes that the, they worry about it damaging their and um, failing their hearing test, mm. and then it, then they won't be able to do shots anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how long did you spend at uh, Notting Hill? Uh, seven years, seven just seven and a half years, and I went to, off to one of the other ones that you mentioned actually, Stoke Newington in Hackney. Oh, did you? And, so yeah. that was a bit of a track, bit of a trek uh, across London. It's just quite sort of sort of almost to the opposite side of London. So what took you to Stoke Newington? Just fancy to change, uh, right. voluntary transfer. Uh, I knew a couple of people over there and I passed my sergeant's exam and I knew I'd have an opportunity to be an acting sergeant because right. it was probably better to be an acting sergeant somewhere where you didn't, didn't work. I've always, yeah. not railed against, <laughs> but I always find it is, you're in an invidious position if you're an acting rank, whatever rank it is, yeah. in the place that you're still serving, especially if you're on the same team. Mm-hmm. Because... One minute, you know, you could be a supervising some and managing somebody one minute, and then you're their peer the next. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. can be, or and vice versa. You're one minute you're their peer, the next minute you're their supervisor. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I went because to pursue acting sergeant opportunities that I right. knew would come, and they did within a year of me going there. And Stoke Newington um, is one of those places, isn't it? Um, that's always had that slightly slight uh, reputation, hasn't it? It's a bit of a sort of a 
there's always we well, used focus. to be a punishment posting because yeah. it was punishment posting. There's always a focus on Stoke Newington. Um, mm. I, one of my mates tells a funny story. Um, <laughs> of um, I think it was Troop in the Colour or something like that. They went to Id, Central London, um, and they went up on a they went up on a uh, carrier from Stoke Newington uh, um, to Central London for ceremonial kind of um, duties, and. Um, uh, the driver, this is back in the day, you know, the driver was um, driving like an idiot um, all over the one of the parks, could have been St. James's Park or whatever, and possibly might have been pulling handbrake turns, possibly. Uh, something ridiculous anyway, you know, stupid stuff on night duty. And some commander um, was out, um, you know, sort of checking up on people and saw this carrier, carrier noted down the registration number and then he went, oh, the shit hit the fan. And it's like, and uh, when he found out, when he found out that it was a Stoke Newington carrier, yeah. he he went absolutely apeshit, and he said he literally took his hat off, I think, and threw it on the ground and says, "It's always fucking Stoke Newington, isn't it?" <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so I mean, what was your experience of Stoke Newington? It was great. I loved it. I mean, I I'd worked on the drugs. I I was part of the one of the first ever drugs focus desks in the Met. I helped right. set that up and had to define our own work parameters with um, um, a police staff um, researcher. Uh, I worked on the vice squad. Uh, the, one of only four um, divisions in the Met had, had their own vice unit. I had a really varied career. But I'll tell you what, going back to what one of the reasons why I went there, shall I tell you the non-BS answer? <laughs> Go on. Well, you know the call sign for Stoke Newington was Golf November. Yeah, yeah. You know what it was also known as back then? No. It was also known as Gay November. Oh, really? Because <laughs> the, the amount of out gay people, mostly women, but a lot of gay people, oh, really? ended up working at Stoke Newington. And I didn't yeah, know that. particularly amongst the TSG, the TSG christened it Gay November. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, so, well, you know, I'm going to go somewhere I can get acting sergeant opportunities and, and be uh, uh, around more gay people because there weren't many out gay people in the Met back those days. But apparently, yeah, yeah. Stokey, well, my dog walk has just arrived, but Stokey, okay. I'll finish on Stokey, was um, definitely rumoured to be the place with the most out gay officers at okay. that time. Brilliant. Two sets. We'll catch you in a minute. That's okay, no problem at all. Yes, um, it's so, so, but my husband just arrived back as well. Can I? Can I just? Um, I need to. I need to understand when you say "come and get dressed" to the dog. What does that actually mean? <laughs> putting their putting their collars on. All oh, right, okay. I was. <laughs> I had this, vi had this vision of some. <laughs> sort of... No, no, it's just be putting their collars on. <laughs> sort they of know high end. It's now. It's time to get ready. No, God, no. <laughs> No, clothes belong on humans. Dogs yeah, have got yeah. Because I was, because if that, I was going to give you some shit on that one. But uh, as you've, as you've said, it's only a collar. Then I'll, I'll let you off. But uh, so you, you spend some time at Stoke Newington, and um, so you, presumably you get substantive rank there, to sergeant. Is that right? No, I was an APS still, um, but I got promoted. Well, I left. Um, I did two and a half, almost three years at uh, Stokey, and I went on promotion, substantive promotion, to Hammersmith, where I spent the seven happiest years of my career. All right, brilliant. So you go back west again, yeah. Yeah. So uh, not that far from, uh, not that far from Ealing, really, where you sort of grew up, and um, yeah. you know, not a million miles away from from Notting Hill, I suppose. No. Um, yeah. So yeah, so the, it was a happy time there. Um, any, so why why was that? I mean, obviously that's good. I'm very pleased to hear it. But why particularly it was so good? Because sergeant is definitely the best rank there is. Yeah. Because you have the most autonomy. Well, if you have decent 
managers or yeah. leaders. Well, there's two categories: there's managers and leaders, and yeah. uh, all leaders can manage, but not all managers can lead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we go on to that in a di- different. But I had a fantastic leader, fantastic borough commander, mm. one of the best chief superintendents I've ever worked for, was mm. Heather Valentine. Right. Um, now Heather Bailey, she's now the uh, chair of the SIA, um, Security Industry Authority. Right. And she was in. You talk about inspirational women. Yeah. She was incredible. She knew everybody's name. She knew bits and pieces about everybody. I was yeah. her staff officer for t- two years. And then she, when I first set up one of the first Save a Neighbourhood team, well, no, not first, it was about six on the borough, six Save a Neighbourhood teams, but I mm. set it up from scratch and was allowed to staff it with who I wanted. Back then, you could yeah. pick and choose your staff to set up a new team. And she actually recalled me to do a, a both roles to be a staffo and run the sofa neighbor team that I was running. Right. Um, but I just remember her work ethic was incredible. She was a single parent of two young kids. She used to come in early doors when she could. Um, it was just crazy. It was just a really great time in my life. Um, yeah. If someone was injured on duty overnight, you know, when she came in, I always made sure I was in an hour before her. Yeah. And when she, when we had our early morning briefing uh, before the day went ahead, um, she the first question on her lips to me was not what the crime stats you know how many burglars we've had was have any of my officers been injured overnight right. and if so are any of them have any of them been hospitalized yeah for, thankfully most of the time it was no but if an officer yeah. had been injured she'd want to know the severity yeah. if they're in hospital what ward they were on um, if they had family, what their kids were called, um, uh, how long they've been. Ad- she basically want me to have a, a service history ready for them. So yeah. that when she made that phone call, and she always did, when she phoned the officer, whether they were at home recovering or whether in hospital or whatever, yeah. she had her at her fingertips facts about. I mean, she, I'm talking about her fantastic memory. Obviously, sometimes yeah. Yeah. she was, you know, briefed up, but she wanted to know the names of their spouse, their husband, their wife, their kids, mm. how they were injured. What was the stage of the investigation for arresting the offender or charging the offender? Yeah. Before any all, other question. All the important stuff, in other words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the important. So that just that was who she was. Yeah. And she inspired me. I mean, we talk about the uh, and also the working relationship we had. Um, she's a very, very attractive woman, and she was also very, very stylish. Right. And she had very tall, long legs. She came into the office one day and um she'd had fallen and twisted her, her ankle on ice. It was really an uh, icy, wintry day. Mm-hmm. And she'd really hurt her ankle quite badly. So imagine the scene, she hobbles into the office. I run to the canteen, get a bag of frozen peas. She's got oh. her foot up on a chair. I am on my knees putting the frozen peas around her ankle. And uh, I look up at her and I say, Mom, do you realise how many of your officers would kill to be in my position right now? <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've just looked her up on LinkedIn. I've just sent her a connection request. So, Heather, if you're listening to this, I'm I'd love to speak to you on the podcast. I um, I'm desperate to get more women on the podcast. I've had a bit of a nightmare getting women on the podcast, and I don't want people to think that it's not through want of trying because I bloody have. Um, I, I'm not sure what what it is. Is it is it that blokes um, like to talk about themselves more? I probably possibly. Um, I think they're they're definitely more reticent to come on. Um, but I, I've got I'm working. There's there's three or four who I'm kind of work, actively working on. Um, 
but yeah, I just want it to be I, I, the last thing I want is people to think that oh, I'm not interested in speaking to. Uh, oh, she'd be a great person to speak to. She ended up uh, finishing her policing career as um, deputy chief of uh, Hertfordshire. Oh, right, and she okay. was actually at one point temporary chief for a, a brief period as temporary chief. Right. And she's had some struggles in her career, <laughs> particularly yeah, yeah. in that force. And yeah, she'd be yeah. if she was willing to, she'd, yeah, she'd yeah. be a great person to speak to. No, it'd be fascinating. Um, she, the particular thing about her is that she wasn't one of the many uh, women who smashed the glass ceiling and then pulled the ladder up behind her because there are people yeah. like that. She yeah. wasn't one of them. She was yeah. very empowering. She um, yeah. she has brought a lot of people along and 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 help people progress people's careers men and yeah. women but yeah. particularly, particularly women she's been a great mentor well i'll just use this as an opportunity to say to anyone out there who's listening to this who knows a um a woman who is uh sort of inspirational kind of woman who has got a really interesting policing story to tell then please please get in touch and, and let me know and uh we can make it happen so so anyway what uh hammersmith um you spent seven years there um and so what just to dit stamp this where are we now roughly 2001 2001 okay. to 2008 when i got promoted to inspector and went to southall okay so so southall was gosh so that's that's an interesting one um i i've never i've always i always worked sort of south of the river when i was in the met and then i went to um uh, scotland yard to special branch so so I suppose my, ter my territorial policing experiences were relatively limited to sort of South London, but um, Southall is an interesting um, place, Great isn't place it? Great place to work. Great place um, to work. Such your... a cultural mix. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. it really is. Um, as I mean, it's a very uh, diverse area, but predominantly, is it predominantly uh, Sikh and? Hindu is there a Muslim community? Sikh, there, there is well? a Muslim community. It's, it's a huge mix, but there's large. I mean, it's got the largest Gurdwara in Europe in Southall. Mm. Um, so it's a huge Sikh community, um, but very mixed. And I say the difference in response from a culturally diverse community is that in the Southeast Asian and Indian subcontinent um, culture, policing is very much valued. And you mm. feel valued, you feel welcome, and you feel ex uh, appreciated uh, yeah. much more than anywhere else I've worked in Southall. Uh, the Indian community did embrace us; they worked with us. Um, you, uh, all, all age groups as well. And you never and go it, hungry, do you? Never go hungry. <laughs> but yeah, it was uh, incredible. I mean, but the, the, the again, I keep using the flip side of the coin is that I often I know that often, particularly in different religious faiths in the Indian subcontinent, they may well be appreciative and thankful of police officers, yeah. but a lot of them don't want their daughters and sons joining. <laughs> but yes. for different reasons. For yeah, different reasons. Well, well, that tends to be, and again, this is at, at, at risk of massively generalising, that tends to be because they have higher aspirations career-wise mm. for their children, don't mm. they? They want to see them mm. as engineers, doctors, lawyers, and things like that, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that stereotype generation has fit in the past, but it it's there. Are, you have seen a lot more uh, Asian female police officers around, which is great and to be encouraged. And I think they're a lot more supportive now. Um, but mm. back in the eighties and nineties, I've worked with Asian colleagues who've got so much shit from their families for joining really? the police. Really? But I'm not sure if it was because of the stereotypical aspirations thing. It was just that they 
didn't trust the old bill because right. you know from their home countries like a cultural the, old, the, the police are very much <laughs> let's say different in right. their policing style it's more military it's almost more of a paramilitary mm. style there mm. if you think that we're um we you know we got abusive authority or abusive force yeah. um then <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. And oh, other, yeah. I'm no. say other cultures and other yeah. communities. Um, oh, yeah. No, I, think I understand we're, we're, that. we're the Boy Scouts of policing compared yeah. to this. Oh, I know. And this is what winds me up because people try the, the British police as if we're like this sort of like draconian, uh, heavy handed sort of bunch of fascist bully boys. And we could not be more benign as an organization. I mean, if bear in mind, this is the organization that has to enforce the law. So at some point, you're going to have to lay hands on people and say, you're not going to do that because if you do yeah. that, we're going to arrest you. But really um we're unbelievably benign compared to pretty much every other police force in the world aren't we yeah and, and on that point i think the biggest ills that we face particularly amongst the younger members of our community is that quite often when we come across people we are the very first people in their lives that have mm. said no to them yeah. or yeah. you cannot behave like that. that behavior is unacceptable mm. and because we're the first people to say no to them and the first people to challenge their behavior that's why we get such a, uh, a very, um, let's say not violent, but ag aggressive response. The response is quite often, you can't tell me that. Right. <laughs> you can't say no to me because no one yeah. else has ever said no to me. That's right, so yeah. I, I think that's the problems that we, we face in, in modern day, I think. Mm -hmm. So how did you find becoming an inspector? Did you find that a big um, sort of jump in terms of responsibility and all of that? uh sort of because I, I i was eased into it gradually because i did do quite a lot of acting inspector uh duties at hammersmith in the last three years um that's because obviously you know the confidence and faith that my uh leaders around me had in me and i was able to mm. i was nurtured and encouraged in fact my last ever tour of duty mm. as an acting inspector was um to arrest the met's most senior police officer ever to be convicted of corruption and to go to prison was that ollie desai i wasn't going to mention his name but you have <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well i was yes. just it's a matter of public record isn't it to be yes. fair well but, I, uh... I didn't arrest him one of my officers did arrest him but oh, i okay. was a i was a principal prosecution uh, witness in that case because all right um, okay i was a duty officer of the day it's one of those you know, Osprey moments is uh, you are duty officer when? Oh God, it's like your nightmare. <laughs> a, com a commander of the Metropolitan Police, is, you know. But so yes, I was there and uh, I gave evidence at both trials at the Old Bailey and oh, Southwark Crown Court subsequently. And at the Old Bailey, Southwark Crown Court, not Old Bailey. And my memory Crown of that is a little bit hazy. So he got he got fined guilty, went to prison, didn't he? And then I think did he get released on appeal? Did it go to retrial? I'm trying to think. He got he appealed. He didn't get released on appeal, but he appealed and it went to retrial and it it, it was. Was upheld the conviction was upheld so oh, and back to prison but yeah that was my last that was my last two of duty it was that the why me moment <laughs> oh, it wasn't even my patch because i was actually duty officer at fulham hammersmith uh, and fulham was obviously one borough but you had two duty officers one shepherd's bush and hammersmith and one fulham and i was a fuller duty officer that night but the hammersmith duty officer was otherwise engaged in custody or dealing with something else <laughs> so i put up for it and i actually got cancelled before i got there i got to the hammersmith gyratory and i went I, as, as, as was my want at the time, as I was going, still, still going uh, re-supervision, because I thought it was one of those moments where you yeah. really need to have the, the duty officer needs to go to this. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm glad yeah. I did now. I'm glad oh, I did. Oh, God. Yeah, no. Yeah. So that was anyway. an interesting moment being, again, on the, on the race and diversity figures, that a lot of people, ethnic minority 
members of the community and some um, in policing, uh, I got shunned for shunned by that, uh, shunned for that, and what, by what? a particular staff association as well, who I am very supportive of and very encouraging of. But I'm I'm not going to name it. But it's a staff association that some members did um, try really? to cause me a bit of grief over right. that. On the basis but, um, that, well, what the hell did they expect you to do? To sort of like yeah. what, like just sort of like, I mean, I'm, I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure what anybody's expected to do other than follow the yeah. law. But one of those, <laughs> so I I, um, I wrote twelve pages in my uh, pocketbook that night, um, and I got asked on the stand by um, by Mansfield, why did you write twelve pages? Because I've never written more than three lines in my pocketbook in my life. I said because yeah. um, I pointed to my shoulders and I said because I'd only just got these bad boys and I wanted to keep them, and I was pointing yeah. to my pips. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, oh yeah and but it's it's very sad that you even have to think like that but you're absolutely right you do have to think like that you know and I can think of many times when I got tied up with something that was potentially very messy and you know high profile and you're absolutely right you literally um write every dot and comma you know every moment by moment of exactly what was what you saw, what you what you said, what yeah. you heard. Well, I got all my lots to do duty statements as well. So my PCs and sergeants all did duty statements. And that was the, uh, and they were like, this is a section, is Nick this bloke for section four public order? Um, why are we all doing duty statements? I said, because this has got potential to go horribly wrong. And I want you to cover your asses. Mm. So um, everybody wrote duty statements and that was the saving grace because then when it came to the commander being himself arrested, Mm. Um, all of the evidential statements were taken from the were from the duty statements, and it was a saving grace for DPS and for the prosecution because mm. I had myself had done the twelve-page pocketbook entry, mm. and then a duty statement, and all my officers that are in attendance were, uh, had done duty statements as well. So that was yeah. probably the saving grace, and that mm. was the start of my career as an inspector. <laughs> well, it's baptism of fire, then, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No, I really enjoyed being. I really, really, even though I'd spent nearly all my time as a uh, previous sort of I don't know, 10 years something like that as a detective in, in sort of counterterrorism investigations um, becoming a uniform sergeant and then a uniform inspector absolutely loved it absolutely loved it it was brilliant and um, definitely some of the highlights of my career and I mean I became a, a inspector first of all when I was in Coventry and you know on a night duty you would be the most senior rank in the whole city you know and yeah. um you know, that's, I don't know, I've no idea um, how many people are in Coventry, but it's a big old city and it's got quite a few sort of suburbs and outline areas you're responsible for, big geographical area, lots of crime, lots of serious incidents. And and I used to love that, you know, being... It, yeah. And that, yeah, exactly in the same vein is that you, you could be on a busy borough like Ealing or Amazon or wherever, Monday to Friday, nine to five, you've got you know, chief inspectors coming out the yin-yang, you've got uh, superintendents and you've got a chief superintendent and senior mm. police staff as well. But come five o'clock on a Friday afternoon through till Monday uh, and every night duty, you're in. You know, you're yeah. in charge of the borough. I mean, you've got people at the end of the phone. But, yeah, 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 you know, yeah. most of the time the, the buck stops with the chief super. But yeah. at that time, it, as, a, as a duty officer, you know, or even a sergeant acting up, whatever. But once you're mm. a duty officer... Mm -hmm. That's it. That 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 whole you're running the borough basically, which is quite 
Uh, sometimes when you think about it, in retrospect, it's a huge responsibility. I think if you, you think about take, it, you, uh, take, you don't even think about it at the time. If you think about it too much, um, you'd 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 freak out. I think sometimes. Mm. I think some of the jobs I've done over the years, if you thought about it too much, um, mm. I think you'd you'd go crazy um, because yeah. the the potential for disaster is there constantly. All the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially when you're de- you're dealing with multiple critical incidents, as was you know common. Yeah, and you've yeah. got to keep the as an inspector, your saving grace is having good sergeants. Yeah, yeah. I've always yeah. I've been fortunate. The majority of my career as an inspector, right, mm. I've had really, really good sergeants, and yeah. it's not like they second guess me. They think as I do. Because mm. sometimes I'll get to the scene, and even with the senior PCs as well, I'll go, mm. "This needs doing. This needs doing." Have you thought about it? You said, "Gov, already done it," and you think that that's exactly what you want for yeah. when you ask for something. And they say to you, I've already done it. You couldn't want for more than that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, they're worth their weight in gold, aren't they, those sort of people? But listen, I'm conscious of time. I'm just curious to, I know you went on, you, you retired as an inspector. So you did it a long time as an inspector, didn't you? Um, and various sort of public order kind of type things, didn't you, towards the sort of latter part of your career? And, and well, then you no, went to... The- was it? The, the most of the public order stuff was in the middle. I did some latterly, but I I, mm. I went from Southall to Kingston, mm. and then Kingston to Barnet, right. uh, where I did a lot of acting chief. I was the right. acting chief during the Olympics. I was right. on what's called the parallel events team, which was everything to do with the Olympics that wasn't sport. All right, so okay. the Olympic committee houses. I basically I myself and another um, chap who's now a chief detective, chief superintendent. He was a substantive chief. I, I was made acting for the period of time mm. that was on the Olympic command team. Mm. And we were responsible for the South Bank from Tower Bridge all the way to Westminster. So we have things like the South Bank, the South Bank Centre, the QE2 Centre, um, the City Hall, which is on the yeah. South Bank, and all the event locations and yeah. the, um, uh, what do you call it, hospitality uh, yeah. centres along yeah, there. Yeah. So I did that. And and I had some interesting roles on Barnet, both as chief inspector, acting chief inspector, neighbourhoods and um, uh, partnership policing, and then a brief stint as uh, acting chief operations. So, mm. yeah, a very really career. Got, but most you really of got public... around geographically. I mean, you must have yeah, shot absolutely. big chunks of the force, didn't you? Yeah, um, and I finished as uh, inspector in charge of um, um, a firearms and general policing response team at. Uh, providing protective security for Heathrow, uh, right. Heathrow Airport. Yeah. Oh wow! So you've really had a fantastically full career. So what I'm, what I'm, what I'm really interested. Uh, one of the things I'm really interested in is um, your thoughts. Bearing in mind, I've written a book called Tango Juliet Foxtrot about <laughs> you know my kind of thoughts around where it's all gone wrong for policing and blah blah blah. Just curious, what you think? What What do you think has gone has gone? Uh, um, even asking the question like that infers that that you think that the job's fucked as well. Um, you might think the job's in, all right, but you know, where do you think the organisation is at the moment? I think we're, we've, as a result of some horrific own goals by people who should never have been carrying a warrant card in the first place, which is quite, and on a few occasions, is the job is entirely at fault because there are lots of missed opportunities to ensure that these people weren't carrying warrant cards. I think we are in a real rough place at the moment and it's going to take us 20 years to recover. I really do. do but again, so? not only have we not helped ourselves with the idiots and morons that we've employed uh, and recently put us to shame, and we've had lots of police officers try and mitigate it by saying, yeah, they've made mistakes. They haven't made mistakes. 
they have committed heinous crimes and mm. ruined people's lives and they mm. are disgusting individuals mm. um and, and i don't care if anyone i get a comeback on that these people are creatures that should never mm. have worn a police uniform mm. and we are struggling and there are there are more of them out there uh, yeah. we'd be fools not to acknowledge that but that is in a, in a way uh, our own fault organizationally institutionally because we haven't um <coughs> our vetting procedures are rubbish mm. um our recruiting selection is all over the place it's never the same two years in a row the recruit selection process is not the same yeah. two years in a row our training yeah. standards not to denigrate current trainers but they you know they have to um use the tools that we give them and the toolbox mm. ain't great at the moment yeah. uh, doing away with residential training that builds a camaraderie and the discipline that we had when we were at Hendon mm. it's all gone out the window and yeah. we're not a discipline even to the point where you go on aid as an inspector and you see people looking like a sack of shit because mm. they've all got different uniforms on uniforms yeah. don't fit them they've mm. got long hair and earrings and man yeah. buns and all that kind of man <laughs> buns that should man be illegal buns. anyway uh, it's just the image we portray is not as a professional police service anymore and this business yeah. of us being seen as the best police force in the world i'm sure i'm we don't have that reputation anymore and no. it's our own fault yeah, um yeah. but the other thing is uh, i would say that i've always always hated the phrase we want the police to reflect and look like the community they serve well i've always said be careful what you wish for mm. because you ask we want people to look, the police to look like the community serve we don't want it to reflect it mm. because yeah. there are pedophiles and misogynists racists homophobes yeah. Yeah. every ist and phobe you can think of in community yeah. we certainly don't want to reflect those mm. so people who say we want to reflect the society we serve need to moderate that phrase because as i say yeah. be careful what you wish for yeah no you're absolutely right and uh, and i i do um i do think i mean i talk about this toxic triad um in my book i talk about um politicians who've thrown the organization under the bus um yeah. and taken away a lot of money uh talk about journalists the other the other part of that sort of triad is a hostile narrative from journalists who should know better um uh, always focusing on the negative and uh and the final part for me is weak too many weak and self-interested so-called police leaders yeah, um, who, who have put their own career and their own selfish interests before the best interests of the organization or the public and yeah so I mean you you touched a bit earlier on you talked about um, you know the difference between leaders and managers and all of that kind of stuff what was your kind of experience of I mean you talked about Heather earlier on she's obviously a shining star as far as you're concerned I mean um, presumably there was without naming names presumably there was people who were who did not uh, meet that sort of high standard that she set yeah yeah I mean I had one <sighs> I dealt with a complaint when I was in southwest London and one borough commander tried to um, make me change the outcome of the complaint it was a long story but it was a neighborhood dispute there was a drug dealer living on one side of the, of the alleyway and anyway so there was complaints against a piece a couple of pcs on my safe and neighbor team it went on and on they ended up complaining about the sergeant complaining about me but the initial investigation uh i spent hours and hours on this investigation for this complaint and it was resolved no case to answer uh, long and short of it is it was approved by the professional standards champion of the borough so the dci said yeah no case to answer this person complained and complained again ended up complaining about 
the borough commander himself. I was tasked with writing the response to that. So yeah. I drafted the letter to, to responding to that and the borough commander signed it and sent it off to the complainant. And then she ended up haranguing uh, the commissioner, um, Bernie Two Dads, on one of his walkabouts. Uh, and because he, she, he got harangued by her, I got called in again. So, yeah, I want you to reinvestigate this. There needs to be a different outcome that ain't happening. So there was a leaving due, a retirement of a chief inspector, and this certain borough commander harangued me at the bar. And I was getting, there was one of the few nights I actually drank because I normally drive to yeah. and from work and I live a long way from where I, 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 I worked normally. So I never drank. But on this occasion, I booked a hotel and I stayed overnight and I was getting more and more pissed. And every time this <clears throat> chief super came up to me at the bar and said, I want to talk about this particular complainant and the complainant and said, look, God, this is near the time and the place. I'm not going to talk to you about it. Mm. And it went on and on. And by the, uh, the penultimate time, I said, look, Guffy, if you ask me about this again, I am going to say something that we both regret. Mm. <laughs> and then um, he did. He asked me again. So yeah. I just said to him, uh, are you, I asked him, <laughs> I didn't tell him, mm. I said, are you, are you some sort of F wit or what? Really? Uh, because I got I was so drunk. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, that's yeah. why I ended up going to live with the command team after that because I, yeah. I knew my, my card was marked. But um, mm. uh, it's funny enough, when I came back from my succumbent, he, he retired. But yeah, yeah, he was just not a good leader. Uh, yeah. And there was other people like that throughout my career. Yeah. But mostly I've had to miss, and like there's one, a lady called Cecilia Hathaway who's now retired. She's another person you should speak to. Oh, okay. She was she was an acting inspector at a time I was an acting sergeant at Stoke Newington. And right. she could tell you some stories about the crap she went through. I mean, she really? was one of the last female officers, well, one of the last cohort of female officers who used to regularly get a skirt hoisted up and a backside stamp with a station stamp. I mean, that's how they treated women in those days. But she held yeah. her truck with that. She uh, She dealt with that quite robustly. Um, Cecilia Hathaway. She's uh, been into. Yeah, I think she did a thing for Channel Four actually once. But yeah, it's a great lady. Um, yeah, there's some great. There's. I mean, I suppose it's the same in any organisation. To be fair, there's probably you know people who are. Who but are I think broke. we've been failed by many people who are managers, not leaders. Yeah. No. Definitely. I think you're right. Especially the ones who do knee-jerk knee reaction quotes after some of the you know the bad stuff. If you see the YouTube videos of you know alleged misuse of force etc yeah, yeah. Uh, journalist comments to journalists that people make that throw throw officers under the bus before the full picture is known so um you've obviously retired relatively recently sort of within the last six months isn't it so what what are your plans you what are you, you going to just take some time to kind of chill out for a bit or uh well i have done <laughs> yeah. um i've just started driving the I volunteered to drive and I say operate, but it's not operate, it's not policing that, to be an escort on the um, local community transport. So dealing with, okay. um, busing the um, older and more vulnerable community members around from uh, their homes to the day centre and right. to mystery coffee mornings and taking them out for lunch and stuff. So I started that last week. I'm Excellent. driving a community transport minibus. Um, keep, they've got house renovations coming up. Right. Um, doing a bit of travelling, uh, thinking Good. about buying a motorhome. But every, I know we're drawing to a close, but I just want to tell you one quick yeah. story that we alluded yeah, to course. earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was doing level two public order training once at Hounslow, and in the locker room, I overheard a TSG officer say, isn't that Warwick? Isn't that Chai Warwick from Hammersmith, the skipper from Hammersmith? What's he doing here? So I left it at that. And I spoke to him in the bar afterwards. I said, um, what, what was that all about at lunchtime in, in the locker room? Because he said, 
well, you're gay, aren't you? What, what are you doing public tra- order training? And it was genuine. It was nothing. He genuinely believed that a gay man wouldn't want to, have, you know, have petrol bombs and bricks thrown at them and be really public order trained. And secondly, he didn't think I would be capable of doing it. And he oh, just God. it was genuine, genuine ignorance. So I turned around to him straight away and I said, "Mate, what the fuck do you think I was going to do? Break a nail?" And he pissed himself <laughs> laughing and bought me a, bought me a drink and we've been mates ever since. All <laughs> oh, right, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes people just say things that are just basically unbelievably clumsy, but there was no, there's no, no malice I mean, intended. There's it's a story which there's a story which I could to illustrate that point. I'm not going to tell it because I, it still makes me cringe now. It, it cringe. It would make me cringe telling the story. Even if it wasn't on a podcast, even if it was in the pub, I, well, I still find it, you know, a, a, a lad from up north who said something to a uh, a member of the public, mean, meaning it as a compliment. And it just was just, oh, my God, I just die when I think about it now. So, but uh, listen, um, this has been really fascinating, um, really interesting. I've learned a lot. Um and it's been just lovely to hear your thoughts and reminiscences and, and uh, reminiscences, is that a correct word? Reminiscences. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I wish you the very best for the future. Hey, and thanks a million for coming and chatting to me because it's just, uh, it's great when people, uh, you know, um, you know, agree to do it. It's been great. I no wish you the very best of luck. No problem. <laughs> you okay, take care. All the best. Right, if we stop the recording, I'll tell you one more story. We'll make yeah, it yeah, one second. I'll just stop recording. All right, so bye, 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 bye. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd be really grateful if you can give it a five-star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Equally, if you've read my book and enjoyed it, then I'd be really grateful if you'd give it a five-star review on Amazon, as that's probably the only platform you can use to review books, apart from Goodreads, I think. And if you want to contact me to tell me anything or ask me anything you can do that uh, by sending an email to ian i-a-i-n at ik-insights.com which is my work email address and finally if you'd like to be part of the tango juliet foxtrot facebook site you can find it funnily enough on facebook thanks a lot